All right, brethren, we'll go ahead, if you would, and open to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. What a blessing it is to have the Holy Scriptures. That's what Paul calls them, the Holy Scriptures. They're Scriptures unique in the history of the world. No other Scriptures like them, because they're from God. And what a privilege we have to open them up. And to look and see what the Lord has to say to us. I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that that's what we're doing this morning. Is that we're actually opening up this book. That's um, preserved the church and instructed the church for some 2,000 years. We have that this morning right in front of us. So it's an amazing privilege. Also an immense responsibility. Not only to proclaim it, but to hear it. And to take it to heart. So uh, before I get into the to text, why don't I pray that the Lord will... Give us that sense to take these things to heart and to just to have that sense that this is his authoritative word. Let's pray. Father, thank you again just for the gift of music and worship. And uh, Lord, just, it just lifts our souls, lifts our minds and hearts out of the just sort of the everyday things of life to remember that there's a God who is ultimately not like any other. Um, there is no one like you. And that's so comforting, Lord, because at times we scratch our heads. We scratch our heads as to um, so many things in life and how things transpire the way they do and, and just what you're doing from time to time and, and just, just this big picture sense of, gosh, we, I just feel so small so often, Lord, just um, with so many uh, just questions and, and thoughts. But ultimately, Lord, it... It's because, Lord, that you are wiser, you are greater, you are infinite, you are eternal. Your, your wisdom is far beyond searching out. Your knowledge is far beyond our minds. No one has been your counselor. No one could be. Um, Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Um, your understanding is infinite. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning as creatures made in your image that need help. We need wisdom. We need you to illumine this word. We need you to give us understanding. And we're so thankful, Lord, that uh, we know there are secret things, but these things revealed belong to us. And so, Lord, you want us to take them to heart, to rejoice in them, to, to put them into practice, um, to live in light of them. And so, Lord, please help us this morning. Again, do what we can't do for ourselves. Um, this morning, send your grace to empower understanding and joy and just the ability to obey and, um, and live for you. Thank you for this word we'll be looking at again this morning in a, in, a, in a certain text here that we know probably wasn't that confusing to the first century readers, but at times as we read it, Lord, it, some of the things just are a little bit out of our, uh, out of our uh, life experience or our cultural experience or just... Whatever it is, Lord, that disconnects us somewhat from this passage, Lord, we just pray that you would bring those connections, that you would cause this text to land with just full clarity and a sense of what you're, what you're speaking to us. And uh, we thank you that we know you can do above and beyond even these things that I ask for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1 Peter 3, I'll read 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 18-22. Peter here says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, 
having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. So lots going on in these several verses. And we have looked at verse 18, 19, and last week we looked at verse 20. This week we want to look a little bit more um, at this section, 21 and 22 is where we'll be focusing. But up to this point in our section, Peter has highlighted the fact that Christians will suffer. We will suffer for doing righteousness. We live in a world where you'll suffer for doing things that are right in the eyes of the Lord, right? That is part of the Christian life. It's not the fine print, it's the bold print. It's exactly what we should expect in our lives. I was talking with someone the other day, and um, uh, they were saying they were having a discussion with another professing believer as to, as to the necessity of evangelism, and this other supposed believer was saying that they're just not convinced that it's really that much of a necessity, that the Lord's going to sort of do his thing and, and sort of his way and his will, and, and that there's no real strong obligation or urgency on our part. I can't remember exactly how he put it. But I'm just sitting here thinking, like, how do you think the early Christians suffered? Why do you think they suffered? Because they were nice people? Because they were just nice? Because they were those who were just good citizens? Or was it because they had a message to proclaim that the world didn't like? And they do. They have a message. We have a message to proclaim that is amazing news, but it's a world that, it's it's news that this world just will not countenance. It's a message that will land us um, being ostracized or marginalized or imprisoned or perhaps even death. And so Peter is telling these people that are experiencing, them, experiencing this persecution at a soft level, as time goes on, it will potentially get worse for them. But he's telling them this so that they will have right expectations, so they will understand that suffering is part of the Christian life. And not only are we going to suffer, but it's, it's in some measure because we are following in the train of our master. He says here in verse 18, Christ also suffered. And he suffered for sins once for all, so his suffering is unique. And he's the just for the unjust. Christ is righteous. We are not. Christ suffers for our sins so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, Peter says. So so as Peter is thinking of the suffering of Jesus, he particularly points to the cross where Jesus is put to death, it says. Jesus allows himself to be led away by godless men and they put him to death. But Peter says here that death was not the final word for Jesus. He was also, as it says, made alive in the spirit. That is, that just as Jesus existed at one time in this state of mortality and was put to death, the spirit gives life to this mortal body, and he was raised in an immortal state, never to die again. And that's what he's saying. He's made alive in the spirit. And it's in the spirit, Peter says here, It's in the Spirit that Jesus is said to make this proclamation to the spirits in prison. That is, when Jesus was raised by the Spirit and in this realm of immortality, it's in this state that he is said to do something. And what did he do? He went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. And I believe that this 
is a statement of Jesus' victory over the demonic realm, or as Peter says in verse 22, authorities and powers that were made subject to him. And I think the overarching point here is that in Genesis 3.15 we have a promise that God is going to come and crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman, which is Jesus, right? And deal a mortal blow to Satan and his realm. And, and, and Peter is here telling us that this death and resurrection is that mortal blow. That's what's going on. In other words, you and I are a part of something extremely big, much bigger than we can possibly fathom. And we get statements like this in Peter. We get statements like this, certain statements similar to this in Paul, where it says that Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt that, that existed against us. And when he did that, he also at the same time disarmed the rulers and the principalities and powers through the cross. All of these statements, they're, they're, they're pointing to some larger battle, cosmic battle that was waged at the cross where Jesus was the victor. And it's through this victorious death and consequent resurrection over death that Jesus goes and proclaims to Satan and his horde, it is finished. We win. And we win because Jesus overcame. And Peter goes on as he's thinking about these spirits in prison. He thinks about them in the past. And he says these spirits were those who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So when Peter's thinking of these demons, he's thinking of those that were introduced early in the scriptures. They first show up in Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, corruption had reached its sort of its zenith very quickly, uh, mind you, after the fall. In terms of its amount and its frequency, there was great wickedness. And in Genesis 6, we read that all of this corruption caused God to respond in absolute grief and anger. And he determined at that point to blot out the human world at that point by the flood. And the flood there is the expression of the wrath and judgment of God on a wicked world who was somehow influenced by the demonic realm. And God said he had to push reset. So that's what's going on there. There's a lot we don't know, frankly. But, but there are some things on the surface we do know. And we do know that there was this realm of the demonic that was influencing the world of men. And God was grieved at his heart. Our sin provokes a holy God. God takes it personally. We talked about all this. I'm, I'll resist the temptation to go into that further. But it's always just a vital point to, just to remember that all of the sins of human beings, because we are created by God and we're owned by God, they affect him big time. They grieve him at his core. And they infuriate him in a sense too. Because it's not the way we are intended to live. And so Peter hearkens back to the flood where God judged sin. And he reset the human race. And this reset, Peter says, consisted of only eight people. Eight. A few. Noah and his family, who Peter says were brought safely through the waters of God's judgment. You know, I'm sure as Noah's family was there contemplating what was actually transpiring, who knows whether they truly believed it all. We know Noah did. They were sort of along, um, sort of tied to Noah's leadership there at some level. 
Who knows, as they were thinking about this, as they were sitting here floating in the ark and the human race was submerged in God's wrath, what they must have been thinking. But you know one thing is true. They were so thankful for Noah. They were so thankful for the grace of God in this man's life that set him apart and says, Noah, you and your family can travel safely through. It's just breathtaking, really. This meant safety for Noah's family. And isn't this a picture? A picture that, that just as Noah's family is thankful for Noah, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus. It's really because of just that one man, ultimately, that we are able to pass safely through God's judgment one day. It's all because of one man. Now, as Peter has the flood in mind, he does something that we may not expect. And I'll admit, it feels a little awkward. Where Peter immediately goes to the flood, or immediately goes to baptism as he's been talking about the flood. It might not seem like it makes a lot of sense to us. One of the things we have to realize, though, is that when you, when you start to think about it, though, God's redemption through water was actually fairly prominent in the Old Testament, right? You think of the flood, for sure. You think of the Exodus. You think of the, the Jordan. These passages that show that God's people passing through water safely to the other side is prominent. And so I don't think that as, 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 you, as, you, as you contemplate this more, that it actually is a far removal to consider the viability and the reality that God has chosen baptism to be that corresponding fulfillment and, and picture, as it were, of God's redemption that existed in the Old Testament through, of his people through water. And, and Peter says as much. In verse 21, he says this phrase here. Most of the translations, or the New American Standard says, corresponding to that. Other translations try to capture basically that, corresponding to that. Or I think in uh, ASV, something says in like manner or something like that. <clears throat> but the term itself is a term of comparison and similarity. But it's more than that. The term is actually the term anti-tupon. And the term means that it's something patterned or modeled after a previous thing. So he's saying here that corresponding to that or patterned after that or modeled after that. Baptism now saves you. Modeled after what? Well, modeled after the flood. Modeled or patterned after the flood. Baptism now saves you. Now this term, antitupon or model or pattern or type or copy is in Hebrews 9.24. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews brings it forward. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. He's thinking there of the tabernacle and the holy place there, the holy of holies. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere antetupon or copy or pattern or model of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So here the term copy is that term, antitype. The idea is that Christ did not enter into the model or the copy of the holy place found in the tabernacle. He entered into the actual holy place after which that tabernacle holy place was modeled and patterned. 
in the Old Covenant. So the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a model or a, or a, or a copy of the true holy place which is in heaven itself where God who is holy dwells. But that's this term. The tabernacle there was a blueprint. Right? It was derived from God's heavenly dwelling. And it was a picture of that. So as we think of Peter's text, Peter is saying that patterned after or modeled after the flood is a baptism that now saves you. So the model after which baptism is patterned was the flood account. So so think of the flood. There you have the waters of God's judgment on a human race and a few saved through the water and they come out safe on the other side. So you've got God's judgment against sin and then you've got salvation from that judgment. That's what you've got with the flood account. And Peter says that baptism is patterned after this in some way. Baptism is, what is it? It's, it's, it's a person being immersed in water, symbolizing their death to sin, under God's judgment in some sense, symbolically, and their resurrection as well that comes through the water, symbolizing their salvation is secure from God's judgment. This is the picture and meaning of baptism by God's design. In other words, this isn't just the early Christians had some other sects that were out there floating, and they're like, oh, they do baptism? Why don't we do baptism? No, this is God's idea. God instituted baptism. It was from heaven to actually picture and show what's going on in the spiritual realm. And it has to do with God's judgment, our sin, and salvation. That's what everything it has to do. And, of course, it's all tethered to the cross, which is what we'll get to in a minute, cross and resurrection. So this is what it is. Baptism is not just a, an opportunism moment or, or, or tradition established by the early church. It was actually from heaven and as a fulfillment of those Old Testament redemptive events of the people of God through water. So, When we baptize, we should be thinking that this is from the Lord. We should be thinking of the waters of judgment and the safe passage of Noah's family and think of us ourselves being brought safely through those waters in Christ and emerging safely on the other side. Baptism is this idea that the judgment of God that's due you, the judgment of God due you, is being has already been experienced and that you were brought safely through and where has it been experienced at the cross of course the lord jesus himself was plunged under those waters of god's judgment and emerged victorious over death and when we are united to jesus we are too and baptism actually is that place where we participate in the salvation of god in jesus christ through the cross And Peter actually flat out tells us here that baptism is salvific. We're not very comfortable with that type of language. When you read the New Testament and you think about baptism, um, or when you read the New Testament and the places where it talks about baptism, sometimes it's uncomfortable for us because it puts baptism right up there with salvation and conversion. I mean, it is right up there. He flat out says here, baptism now saves you. (laughs) 
It's, it's like, what? I thought it was faith. But Peter says it. He puts it right there in the realm of salvation. Now the term baptism itself means immerse. Um, doesn't mean anything else. Uh, you remember uh, the, the classic passage is Jesus' own baptism, right? Where the text clearly says he came up out of the water. And I heard a Presbyterian one say, oh, well, that could just mean he was walking out of the water up onto the land, not that he was... And I was just like sitting here thinking, what was he doing in the water? In the first place, right? He was in the water. Even if you want to say he walked out, he was in there. He wasn't on the shore, just in need of some sprinkling. He himself was in the water. Baptism means immerse. It does not mean sprinkle. It never has. That's what the term means. And actually, you don't find the whole idea of, of, of sprinkling anywhere in the New Testament as it regards baptism. The entire event is to depict a deluge. Right? Not sprinkling. When you begin to think about the flood, the whole idea of sprinkling sort of goes away. And it's reserved only for salvation. Baptism is reserved for those who are being saved. That's what it's for. There's no third category of of covenant children entering through ba- or coming uh, entering into some covenant family through baptism. There's no sense in which there's no sense here at all that baptism corresponds to circumcision, as Presbyterians would say as well, or co- covenant theology would teach. No, baptism is in some sense salvific. No third category. And I'm going to explain what I mean by salvific, but just have just suffice it to say that baptism has to do with those who are being saved. Obviously, I'm not going to say that the rite itself makes one right with God, as Peter will tell us in a moment, but neither will I say that it is administered to those who are not being saved. Um, The only baptism the New Testament knows anything of is a baptism of saved believers. There is no third category. So when Peter says baptism saves you, what does he mean? Well, uh, he, he very quickly wants to tell us he's not talking about the, the actual ceremony itself or the, or the tradition he, or the actual physical act of being immersed in water. He very clearly wants to point that out. So he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the act itself has a salvific power or endues you with grace or something like that. It's not a sacrament. Baptism is not a sacrament. It does not come attached with God's grace as you go through. That is not the idea. The idea is here that it has to do with the inward reality that is transpired, which leads to the baptism. It's not the actual water that saves. As Peter says here, it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Appeal to God for a good conscience. Or an answer to God for a good conscience. Or a request of God or an appeal. These, these are the terms that are sort of all in the same semantic field of this root word. The word appeal that the NAS uses here, there's some discussion here on what's, what's the best word. Again, the ASV says Answer. The term itself can be various translated as request or ask or appeal. Matthew 16.1, the term is used where the disciples or the people there with Jesus 
they ask him to show him a sign from heaven. So here the term is ask. It means that there those people were asking Jesus, appealing to Jesus for him to do some sign, some miraculous sign to prove his claims. And there are other places, but, but the whole idea here, I think, is, is of request or appeal. I think whatever way you take it, appeal, request, answer, what Peter is saying is that baptism occurs in tandem with or because the sinner has responded to God for a good conscience. In other words, the Lord has made the sinner aware of an evil conscience at some point. When you became a Christian, at some point you were made aware that you needed saving. (laughs) An evil conscience became clear to you. You became aware of an inward cleansing that was needed. And this appeal to God transpires because this sinner is aware of this. In other words, those getting baptized are the ones who have appealed to and called on the Lord for inward cleansing. They seek a clean conscience. So the outward picture of baptism is an indicative of a spiritual cleansing that has transpired. I think that's what Peter's getting at. He doesn't point to the outward act so much as he does the inward reality of the good conscience that is now been restored, the clean conscience that has now come to pass, the spiritual cleansing that the sinner has experienced. The sinner is there as one who knows they need a clean conscience, and they know the Lord is the only one who can give it. This is, I think, the idea of of what Peter has in his mind goes on during baptism, or is why baptism transpires, because it, it just is this place where the sinner is appealing to God and and recognizing that the good conscience only comes from the Lord through inward cleansing. And this is glorious. This is glorious because the gospel doesn't just make us legally right with God. It actually cleanses us from within and gives us inward cleansing. Right? It's really just the new birth we're talking about here. The new birth where we actually get the Holy Spirit of God and He gives us new eyes to see, new ears to hear. We get a a conscience that at one time was always guilty and stained to now having a conscience that is aware of God and aware that God Himself has declared us righteous and forgiven and cleanses us from our sin. This is true liberation. But it's actually not just a clean conscience, Peter says, God gives you. It's a good conscience. It's appeal to God for a good conscience. Again, as I understand it here, I I think what Peter is saying here is, yes, there's this cleansing, but there's also this, this appeal, this calling on the Lord for a good conscience, a conscience that is restored to understand right and wrong from God's perspective, a conscience that is on the same page with the Lord. Yeah, the conscience is a moral alarm, isn't it? You know, if you sin, you, you know it because you have a conscience that tells you such. But before you're in Christ, you call evil good and good evil. Right? I mean, that's, that's just what happens to varying degrees in the world. The world's messed up. They call good evil and evil good. 
But this is a good conscience that the sinner now wants. We want to be on the same page with the Lord. When we come to Christ, our conscience is sort of reset to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And so obviously this understanding of baptism as that place where our inward cleansing is represented, it precludes unbelievers. It precludes infants. Infants can't sit there and appeal to God for a good conscience. That's not in view here. We don't baptize infants because in the New Testament, only those who believe and personally call on the Lord have the right or the expectation to be baptized. But then Peter says, but it's not ultimately the appeal to God that's the basis of our salvation. It is the work of Jesus. He will not ever disconnect the work of Christ from anything that touches the fruit of that work. In other words, let me try to say it this way. Peter says here that it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says. Our appeal to God for a good conscience is through the resurrection of Christ in order to be truly effective. What does he mean by that? Well, the resurrection, what is it? It's the crucial act whereby the work of Jesus on the cross is shown to be sufficient and ushers Christ in his role as the king at God's right hand that Peter's going to talk about here. Without the resurrection, our faith, Paul says, would be in vain. We'd still be in our sins because it would show that the atonement of Jesus doesn't work. Sins would still need payment, but because of the resurrection, it's clear that Christ really did put our sins away. And because our atonement has been made to appease God's wrath, we, and as we call on the Lord, He can cleanse us of sin and guilt down to the level of the conscience. So ultimately, Peter is just saying here that it's the work of Jesus that secures our salvation. The ordinance of baptism simply symbolizes our participation and reception of that great work. Earlier in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this again because Peter cannot think of any inward cleansing or new birth transpiring apart from the work of Jesus. Listen to 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. So our new birth, Peter said here, is that place where we come alive and we are raised spiritually And Jesus' atonement for sin and consequent resurrection from the dead guarantee that we will be raised spiritually. And so it's important that that we grasp what Peter is saying here, that, 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 that our new birth, our appeal to God, all is rooted in the work of Jesus. Every aspect, from faith to everything, that we have that make us right with God are tied to the work of Christ. Therefore, ultimately, it's all glory to Jesus. All glory to Him for what He has done. We might talk about how we're saved. We might talk about our testimonies. We might talk about our baptisms. But ultimately, they're all empty if there's no cross and resurrection. And as Peter highlights the resurrection... 
He can't help but expound the further implications of the resurrection. So look back at chapter 3. Peter says this, that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. The resurrection from the dead means that Christ will assume the throne of David as the exalted king and savior because Jesus has defeated his foes, who are our foes, and won the war over Satan and sin. And this is exactly what the passage is saying. We noticed earlier that Jesus in his post-resurrection state proclaims a victory over evil spirits and the demonic realm, declaring that Satan has no claim on his people because their debt's been paid. And after this resurrection, 40 days later, Jesus ascends to the right hand of God as, as king over heaven and earth, over all things visible and invisible. So it says that Jesus is at God's right hand. Verse 22. He's at God's right hand. Many of you know, as you've read the Old Testament, that the right hand of God is the right hand of power. Jesus has all power in heaven and on earth. It's actually what he, he cites there to give, to give great encouragement and strength and boldness to go out into this world to preach the gospel. The present reign of Jesus Christ is the motivation and the surety of the church that we will win, that sinners will be saved, that Satan will be held back for Christ to be able to usher forth his church and build his kingdom. He is at God's right hand. And Steve dealt with this a lot, I think, during the discipleship passages as he looked at Matthew 28. So I'm not going to belabor it, but, but this reality of, of Jesus reigning at God's right hand is where the whole Old Testament was always moving. To a divine son sitting on a throne, reigning at God's right hand, ruling in the midst of his enemies to build his kingdom. And that's where he is. Where is Jesus? You can teach your kids this. Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of God. That's where he is right now. The place of absolute power. In Psalm 2, Psalm 110, 2 Samuel 7, all these passages just point to this reality that the Messiah to come would be the son of David. And where is this right hand of God? Well, it's in heaven. Having gone into heaven. That's another realm. I don't think it's just a little bit higher than Jupiter. I think it's a completely different realm. And that's where Jesus is right now as the God-man. He's reigning in heaven. And heaven is that place where God dwells. Heaven is that place of absolute authority. And heaven is that place where Jesus rules now. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so this is, this is incredible news, this is wonderful news, because it means that Jesus is king over all evil forces. You know, when, when you're praying for your kids at night and they're scared about evil dreams, you know, you want to point them to the, the cosmic king, the Lord Jesus Christ, that has power over all evil, right? When you're thinking yourself over, over your, your own life and you think about the reality of this warfare that goes on, you don't need to be afraid, because the reality is that Jesus has conquered. He is the King of Kings. 
Satan can't stop him. He's already reigning. And why did he go there? Well, because ultimately he already subjected angels and authorities and powers to his rule. He gained the victory. Now he says here, angels and authorities and powers. Angels and authorities and powers. Who are these authorities and powers and angels? And there's a lot of debate as to whether or not these are good angels, are they bad angels, are they both? Well, I tend to think he's primarily has in view hostile angels. I mean, maybe it makes sense that to also say that good angels are also in submission to him. That's probably true. But I think, again, for Peter's readers, I think he's wanting to highlight the fact that Jesus Christ is actually king over the demonic realm. I think that's what's going on. Again, this is so much bigger than we realize. This salvation, this war that we're in is so much bigger than we realize. So I'll just mention a few things here and then we're done. Over and over in the, in the Bible, over and over in the New Testament, we are told that Jesus has conquered our greatest foes. Over and over we are told this. Overcomes sin, overcomes Satan, overcomes death. And one of the things we always have to remember when we're talking about the heroes of the faith and all of that is that ultimately there's really only one hero. We are not heroes. David's not a hero. Samuel's not a hero. Right? Abel's not a hero. Moses is not a hero. Peter's not a hero. Paul's not a hero. There's only one. And it's the Lord Jesus. He's the one we worship. He's the one we praise. He's the only one who's overcome it. If it weren't for him, we would be facing God's justice and be like those in Noah's day, swept up in the flood. There's only one hero of the whole story. And it's on us, because he's defeated sin and Satan and death, it's on us to simply remain steadfast, trusting in the Lord, standing firm against Satan's schemes. And he will wage them. And he is prowling, as we talked about. Just because it says he's in prison doesn't mean he's not active. Right? We talked about that at length. He is very much active. He very much wants your blood. He very much hates you. He's filled with hatred. And so it's on us to stand firm. And we can stand firm. And there's a sense in which we will have our, our foot on the neck of the serpent at some level. But it actually... I think Paul says, let me, let me read it here in Romans 16. <clears throat> I didn't write the verse down, so it might take me a minute. I think it's Romans 16, isn't it? What, what, what verse is it? Romans 16, two-thirds through. Yeah, this is what, this is what struck me about this, because someone was talking about our, our involvement and God's involvement in this war against Satan. And, and, this, and the reality is, we get to experience the victory over Satan, but it's God who actually accomplishes the victory. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So it's our feet, but it's God who does it. My point is, is that the victory is all on him. The war to win the battle is all on him. We get to participate through faith, but ultimately, that battle is the Lord's. That's what we learn in the whole Old Testament, right? The whole Old Testament is this picture 
that God is the one who fights for us. God is the one who's the warrior. God is the one who wins our battles, right? And it's on us to trust him to do it. And we can just stand by and watch him do it. And this is what's going on here. God gives us participation in his victory, but he's the one who is victorious through Christ. God is the hero. Jesus Christ is the hero. And he holds us and makes us stand. So stand fast in Jesus Christ. Know that you battle a defeated foe. As you strive to bring the gospel to your neighbors and co-workers, there is no question Satan will be looming there. No question at all. He will be there to pluck those seeds. But again, just know that Jesus is also there. And his people will hear and live. So be confident. Don't let the reality of the warfare keep you from speaking. Let it propel you to speak because Jesus is at God's right hand. Ruling over every principality and power that would thwart our mission. Another thing, just thinking about baptism. We have talks about baptism often here because kids want to get baptized and others. If you've believed on Jesus and you've never been baptized, please understand that this is a command and expectation of the New Testament. But kids, please also understand that it's not baptism. It's not those waters up there that actually save you. It's not those waters that make God happy per se. Right? It's you personally calling on the Lord for forgiveness and a clean conscience. That's what it is. It's you personally calling on the Lord. And if he forgives you, it's because of what God has done in Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's not even your calling that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you. And your call on the Lord says, Lord, I believe you that that saves. But baptism is a beautiful picture. It's an amazing picture. It's an amazing picture for genuine believers that the judgment of God due to our sin has passed through the work of Christ. And we are safe in Christ. We are safe in the ark who is Jesus Christ. And that's an amazing reality. That we can, can sleep soundly, so to speak, because the judgment of God has passed for us. That, in a sense, can just, should, anyway, it should take us take our breath away every day. So that's, that's what I had. I wanted to finish up that section there in chapter 3. There's so much more that I could say. I'm sure there's a lot more that some of you who've studied this passage would like to say. Feel free to expound. I'm going to be gone next weekend. You can have the whole time yourself to expound more on 1 Peter 3. But I think this is the gist of what Peter's saying. And I think Peter is wanting these believers to stand firm against the warfare they experience and to understand that, that Jesus is king. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us grasp this more and more. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your holy scriptures. Um, Lord, we, um, we just pray that you would just help us to just take in in full effect, Lord, what it is, what it means that Jesus is at your right hand gone into heaven after authorities and principalities and powers were subjected to you. And, um, and Lord, help us to always live in light of your kingship and not be afraid. Be fully confident that you're able to bring this all to pass and preserve us to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.